Hello, everybody. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening to all of our followers out there. This is Jeffrey M. Roach, co-host of Holistic Leadership, the Future of Work in Education and Healthcare, along with my co-host, Dr. Travis Hearn. We are so excited to be with you here today as we continue to delve into some really interesting topics. And we are really fortunate to have an amazing guest today that I actually got to see present at the U.S. Chamber Talent Forward uh, event and was was just not just impressed, but inspired to really dig deeper. And that's one of the reasons why we have Dr. Andre Martin here with us today. Dr. Martin is an organizational psychologist and author of the upcoming book, Wrong Fit, Right Fit, Why How We Work Matters More Than Ever. He has spent nearly 20 years as the chief learning officer or chief talent officer of iconic brands such as Mars Incorporated, Nike, Google, and Target. He is now acting as a cultural strategist, which we, we definitely want to understand this, in residence at Joyful.co, an operating advisor, board member, executive coach, and consultant. I want to dive right in, though, Andre, particularly around the book. Uh, when you presented at Talent Forward, being in the room, I could see there was a lot of people saying, wow, fascinating title, uh, issue we're all wrestling with. And many people, I think, are almost resigned to the fact that they don't know how to solve these issues. But you presented some really fascinating data from large, small, medium-sized organizations. I want to ask you, why did you write the book? And if you had to kind of sum up what you learned in there as it relates to culture, future of work, what would you share, you know, particularly with our listeners from a leadership perspective, from a culture perspective? Hey, Jeffrey, first, thanks for having me here to both you and Travis. It's a pleasure. Um, you know, the book, I, I think the origin story matters. So I got contacted by a publisher to to really write a book on culture in this new era of work post-COVID, right? You're talking about hybrid, you're talking about burnout, you're talking about higher expectations, more meaningful work, all those things. And so I did what most researchers would do, right? I'm a total geek at heart. I went out and I, I canvassed everybody I knew that had a point of view or position on the topic of what makes a great company. And what became really clear really fast was there just wasn't one answer. For all the great books on culture, right, that say it's the 10 best practices, this or the five things that you got to do here, what I was hearing was something kind of different. And it was really this sense of what worked for one person didn't seem to be the same or even parallel what was working for another or what they thought would work in the future. And so it had me in this place where I'm like, hey, what if the question's the wrong question? What if it's not about good or bad culture? It's not about toxic or engaging environments. What if it's really about whether or not I fit the way that a company likes to work? And so then I sort of sat in that question for a minute, just in my own experience. And I, you know, I thought about it. I'm like, God, if you, if you break down the way work happens on a given Friday morning in any large company, the way Nike works is different than the way Google works, is different than the way Mars works, is different than the way Target works. And I'm like, so what if the question is actually about right or wrong fit? What if there is a preferred way of working, you know, a way to do strategy, a way to collaborate, a way to solve problems, manage conflict, our relationship with time, the way we think about meetings, rest and recovery, feedback and development. What if the way that those things are done at a company either fits or doesn't fit me? And so one of the biggest lessons, and it's sort of a, a metaphorical lesson is, when you're in a wrong fit environment, it feels like you're riding with your non-dominant hand every day. 
And I don't know if you ever tried to do that, but if you pull out a pen and you start writing a sentence with your non-dominant hand, I could tell you five things really quick that are going to happen. One is you're going to get frustrated. Secondly is your quality is going to be probably not that good. You're going to have to put in more effort. You're going to feel less competent. And over the long term, you're going to lose confidence. And that's what's happening to people that find themselves in these right in these wrong fit experiences. And so the whole book was basically interviews with over 100 people trying to figure out the difference between right and wrong fit. And then also, what could you do to avoid it? What could you do to retain right fit if you have it? And if you're a leader of a company, how do you build a company that actually sells what they are every day? And that was sort of the nature of the book. It's kind of that simple. That's outstanding, Andre. Like <clears throat> you and I had, we had similar walks after COVID. I dove into, I like, like, like Jeffrey said before, like I'm, I'm kind of a leadership geek as well. Yeah. So what I did was I dove into how, how hybrid and remote work is going to impact leadership and how do you lead hybrid and remote teams? And you mentioned hybrid. And, uh, I just, I think that we've all throughout our careers, whether we're our first career at 15, when we were, I was a ball boy at a, at a driving range. I got to pick up golf balls, definitely the wrong fit for me. Um, but we've all been in a, in a position where we've been in the wrong fit. Um, and as leaders, I think it's our job to identify and help people understand that, Hey, this may not be a right fit. How do you have those? How do you, how would you recommend having those conversations as leaders for those that we can see, man, this, this is, this is just not, not a great fit for you. Yeah, I mean, one of the things we I do talk about in the book, and it was a it was really an important realization for me is if you think about the way that we construct that conversation today, we do it through performance management, right? Often through these check-ins we have at year end, and what we end up doing is giving people a score, and that score really boils down to you're either a success or you're not. You're either brilliant or you're not. You're either a star or you're not. You're either good or you're not. And, and what I when I look at that now, after doing all this research for the book, I'm like, that's where it all goes wrong. What if the conversation was actually, hey, Travis, I see you struggling. Mm. And that's 50% my fault. Mm. Right? And we start saying, you know what? Maybe the way that we're doing work doesn't work as well for you. Where's it hard for you? Where are you struggling? What do you need and how can I help? And if you could have that conversation, I mean, this is one of the things that came from the interviews. Almost every interview I had in those wrong fit situations, first of all, everybody has them from the most successful CEOs down to people who just have their first or second job. Second thing that became really true really fast was just having that conversation about, hey, the way they socialized ideas, that didn't work for me. The way we collaborated, that didn't work for me. The way that our calendars were set, that didn't work. It was cathartic. Most people hold on to those wrong fit experiences their entire life. I had CEOs tell me really successful ones that would look at me and go, that moment in my career, if I would have been there another month, another two months, I wouldn't be where I was today. It destroyed my confidence, I was losing competence. I was yard sailing the most important things in my life, trying to work harder to find my way. And they're like, for the first time, I can breathe easy, knowing that it was never going to work. It wasn't about me being good. But when you're in that moment, like this was the thing, guys, when you're in that moment, the way they described that was 
hey, it felt like I was getting punched in the face in a different way every single day. I thought all the success I had up until that point was fake. Maybe I truly was an imposter. Maybe I wasn't very good at this. And I'm like, the fact that our companies do that to us, just it motivated me to keep writing and keep talking and keep working on this topic because it's super important. Yeah, it's almost like we're doing as leaders, we're doing them a favor to have that moment of like, hey, if I would have stayed in this career for any longer, if I would have stayed in this spot for any longer, that would have been detrimental to my overall progress um, 10 years from now, five years from now, two weeks from now. So I think it's, it's important work. Yeah, Travis, and, and this you bring up a really good point is when you look at it from the other end of the talent themselves, the thing that most people said when I asked them about that wrong fit experience, I first asked them, when did you know? Mm. And they would, almost everyone, they would pause, they would kind of chuckle or laugh and they'd go, I knew in the interview. Mm. And I ignored it. I ignored those signals because I wanted the bigger title. I wanted the better Mm -hmm. pay. I loved the brand. I thought the company would be fantastic. And they all said, I probably left the place that I was better suited to stay and do work. Wow. And that, like, isn't that, that, like, that just blows my mind. I'm like the confirmation bias that happens when we want to make a different decision, the, the lack of truth that we see. And so the, the lesson I think, and we'll talk more about this, I'm sure, but it's like, we got to stop and do a little bit deeper search in our, in ourselves for what am I solving for? Like, really, what am I solving for in my life, in my work, in my moment right now and in my next 10 years because if you don't know that you're invariably going to put yourself at risk as you try to find that next experience so andre what when i when i hear you say that immediately what comes to mind for me and travis and i talk a lot about this not just on here but as as colleagues and friends and also people that hold one another accountable because travis will tell you he'll tell me right away jeffrey are you okay there's something up i could tell by the by your face and vice versa and i think what I hear you when you say that is meaning and purpose. But but when I think about meaning and purpose, if you're in that wrong fit, you can have that meaning and purpose just wither away. I've been there. Uh, and, you know, people will say to me, oh, you've really been there? I have colleagues. Oh, no, there's no way you've been there, Jeffrey. No, I've been there. And to your point, wasn't for me in the interview. It was for me actually a couple months in where I was working with the CEO and learned what type of person is this? It's almost like it's a monster. Uh, very different than what the experience was, you know, in the interview, through the recruitment process, you name it. And I'm curious, like in your research and also in your expertise, what have you found to help somebody? Because, yeah. um, you know, we're at a time where mental health is truly an epidemic. But in the workplace, it's probably the, probably the worst it's ever been. And I'm afraid we don't have leaders who are who either are recognizing it or are wanting to solve it. Well, and there's maybe a third category, right? They just don't know how. You know, they're just we we haven't got them ready for the era that they're trying to lead in. And so one of the things, like I want to come back to some of the things you said, Jeffrey. I want to start with the end of that, which is, hey, when I look at the last 2009 to 2019, they were the periods of the most economic expansion, consistent economic expansion in the United States ever in history, right? The one thing that guarantees a lack of development is constant growth and progression, right? When your company's growing pretty easily, when the the U.S. economy is expanding, we probably didn't do as much work as we had to do in the leadership space to get leaders ready for the next chapter of that story 
which invariably was going to be hard. We all knew it, right? We all knew pandemic aside, hey, everything that was happening was going to get hard at some point again, right? And we just weren't doing our job to get folks prepared. And that's the thing. I, I have a lot of um, respect and empathy for anyone who's in a leadership position today in corporations. It's harder than it's ever been in. And we didn't prepare you well enough. And I'm talking about a chief learning officer who's been in the space for 20 years. We just didn't get you ready for this. And so I'd start there. But I think secondly, you know, when you think about what can we do in the book, you know, I put in these sort of eight excursions for people to get just super clear about what you're solving for. What do you value in your big decisions? Not what you wish you valued, but actually what do you value when you make big decisions? Who do you want to work for? Right. What are your superpowers? What things do you do really well and that bring you energy? What do you have to what do you have to get done right now? Right. What are you solving for right in this moment? Is it you just need cash? Right. Is it that you just need to have a job in this city where your spouse or partner is living? And then lastly, like, what are you solving for in the next 10 years? And those are really good for individuals to use before they ever start a job search because you'll have the right lens on it. They're also really good for leaders to use with their teams. Right. I think in this day of burnout and productivity and everyone's got their hair on fire, spinning plates every single day, the thing we're probably not doing is stopping, taking a deep breath, open our eyes really wide and asking somebody like, what do you want to be doing? What would bring you joy? What would bring you energy? What would keep you sort of um, committed to this place, even if we're under a ton of stress, which a lot of folks in healthcare right now we know are. We're just not having those conversations often enough, first with ourselves and then with each other. Yeah, that's so good. And when we, when we start, when we, there, there's a book that that my uh, father-in-law got me, like when I was leaving the Marine Corps, it's called What Color Is Your Parachute? Mm-hmm. And it was all about wrong fit, right fit. What are you, what are you doing? It's a great book. Um, yep. But then I got into the workforce and it was very much this kind of trial and error type of thing. Uh, get a legit, like at what point, Andre, would you say like, is there, is there a point where you have to try to make it the right fit? Yeah. As, and and how, where does a leader, how does a leader walk somebody through that process? Yeah, Travis, I mean, this is, this is the thing I heard again and again in these interviews, right? Is that right now what's happening is there's sort of three versions of a company. There's the company I'm getting recruited into. Jeffrey, you just talked about this. It's like, it's all aspiration. It's, it's a first date. You're getting to see this company on its first date ready, most beautiful sort of version. And that's actually what we're buying, which I think is where we start to do a disservice to our talent is sell what you are because they're going to find out anyway, right? Just be who you are. You're still going to get talent. They're still going to come work for you. Your brand of crazy might be exactly what they want. But when you tell them some other story, you set them up to be disappointed with the reality, right? The second thing that happens is we come in the company on the first day, we get exposed to the best leaders. We get the most curated stories of value of the company. We get the systems that actually work. And so we're sitting there saying, hey, this feels a little bit different, but it still feels okay. And then Travis, here's what happens is I go out into the the mysterious darkness of this organization. And the only way I learn how the company works is I have to bump into it, right? I bump into this, I'm like, oh, I didn't know that's how we did that thing. Now I know, I'll figure it out. But you know what happens every time I have to bump into a company? It chips away at my engagement. 
It chips away at my confidence because invariably you're bumping into it a place where you stumble over something, right? Oh, I thought we did this this way. Turns out we do it this way. Great. I'll do better tomorrow. And so I would say this. I think the second thing we could do is, man, let's not do less onboarding. Let's do more. Let's teach people the way that work gets done here. Let's give them all the things. Let's talk about how we set strategy and manage conflict, how we really give feedback, how we develop people. Let's talk to them about the way that you have to set an agenda. You know, all these things that, that we do in work that we ask people just to figure out. And what happens is this, guys, and this is probably the, the uber point here, is the one thing I've learned over 20 years is that your creative energy is always flowing. It's always flowing. It's just what it's flowing to. And when you're in that position, Travis, you know where your creative energy is going to? Context and the coordination of work. Not to your craft, not to what you're good at, not to where you could actually add value. You're having to spend all your creative energy in all these other places. And so what if, what if this was the reality? What if when you walked into a company, I sat you down for three straight days and taught you the rules to the road, gave you every secret from all the people that have been here, about how this place actually works. I wonder what happens to your creative energy then. And I also wonder what happens to hiring then. It's, so with that, when, you're, when we're trying to hire, there's, there's a talent gap in today's workforce where people can't hire enough of the right people. That's right. So training becomes a, becomes a priority when you can get 60% of the solution into the door. And that it becomes, it becomes a necessity in order to make the, 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 the job run well. Yeah, but I love what you said about okay. It's so when when I when we interview for jobs, I bring my resume. I'm bringing my best self. I'm bringing my 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 social media addition to whoever I'm interviewing with. One hundred percent. And your perspective of like so is the company is a great perspective of for for interviewees for people coming into the workforce, for people changing jobs, for people moving out of that fit to be able to ask some of those harder questions to the company, to be able to, to say, Hey, is this, am I in two weeks going to bump into something that's going to be like, Ooh, that would have been, that was a, that was a game changer. That was a deal breaker from, from go. Yeah. And now I found that. Mm. And here's, here's the two things I'd say to you, right? The two sort of strategies I have is on one side, you know, what if companies did a realistic job preview? Mm. What if actually instead of a job description with the 27 to 50 bullets of all the things you might ever do in this job the rest of your life, that's just not reality, right? The truth is, is you get in that job, Jeffrey, you just, you just moved. I have before. It's like you get in that job and of the 20 things you thought you were going to do, it's only these three. And then plus all these seven other things you didn't know you were going to have to do that you're supposed to do. And so realistic job preview. And what if we did it this way? What if we said, Hey, the first thing I want to show you is how we work. Here's how we do all those things I talked about earlier. Do you work that way? If so, let's have the next conversation. You know what the next conversation is? We're missing these capabilities. Do you have them? Great. If you do, here's a couple of things we got to get done. Does this work sound interesting to you? If so, come and work here. We'll figure out the rest later. With that. Imagine what that would be like, right? From an engagement standpoint, from a fit standpoint, from the ability to find more, you know, sort of talent that's going to be here for a long time. Because essentially what you're saying is, hey, if you work the way we work, we've got plenty of problems to solve, right? If you have a competency we don't have, you're going to be valuable to us and we're going to be valuable to you. 
And if these three pieces of work that are right now exactly what we need to get done, if those are interesting to you or they're in your wheelhouse, you're going to come in from day one, you're going to fly. But right now what happens is like we get in there. Oh, my God, this company doesn't feel like it did. Hey, this job doesn't look like it did. Hey, the things I'm being asked to do, I really am not interested that in. You just watch engagement, commitment, well-being, all those things start to plummet a little bit, right? I got our next our next reality show, Andre and Jeffrey. We're, it's going to be America's Got Talent, like industry edition, where <laughs> that's what we're going to do. We're going to have we're going to have we're going to have interviews for two weeks, and we're going to have hands on. It's going to be it'll be a game show. And we'll make millions. I promise. I love that, man. That'd be a blast. Let's go do that. Yeah, that, <laughs> yeah. Would, that would be a good time. Andre, um, I was reading yesterday, and I don't remember where it was, so I apologize for our listeners because I don't remember the source, but I was reading a really fascinating article that was saying that um, they're expecting employers to actually pare back investment in employee engagement yeah. uh, in the next quarter. And I was so disheartened uh, because you know we're at a time where I, I think we need even more engagement, and I think authentic engagement can really lead to uh, not only a better culture, but really improve around retention. You're an expert in this. Uh, you also interviewed. What are your thoughts? And for leaders who are listening, uh, and when, when this gets shared you know, with others, what should they hear about this? Why should they not be taking that action? Because we all know that it's going to be the front line that suffers the most when they pair that back. Well, hey, there's a couple things I'd start with. Is the first one, you know, there was a day not so long ago where if I recruited you, did my job onboarding, put you in a seat in a job that you liked and were good at, I didn't have to worry about you for five years. Now the world's changed, right? So there's so much availability of information. I know more about every other person's experience at work than I ever have before. So everybody's infinitely browsing. Everybody's looking for greener grass. Everybody's trying to find fault in the place that they're at. And that's the easiest thing in the world to do. You want to find a problem, they're out there waiting for you, right? And so what I would tell leaders is, it used to be that you recruit people once. You're re-recruiting people every day. It's a ground game. It's a fight for their intention, for their attention, for their commitment. And so as a leader, I'd be saying, hey, am I literally using every touch point I have with my people to answer four questions for them that'll keep them in seat and in this company doing their best work. The first one is why, why is the world better with us in it, right? Everybody needs to know that there's a larger reason for why I'm spending all this energy. Secondly is how do we make money or provide value? The number of people that get in a really narrow job in a company and have no idea how the whole thing works, they don't know their place in it, right? They don't know that they're an important place or cog in that wheel unless we tell them. The third is how we get work done. And the last is what's my promise to you? How am I going to ensure that you're going to get more out of this experience than I'm going to take from you? And I just don't know that we answer those questions often enough for our people. Uh, and so we put it at risk. Like, all I need is two days of no one talking to me, nobody seeing me, no one valuing me. And my head's up. I'm on monster.com or Indeed, and I'm looking for the greener grass. That's the reality. Yeah. And so, like I said earlier, we, I, like, I, I do a lot of, I, ner I nerd out on hybrid and remote work like it's cool. All the studies, all the things that are coming out. And it is this quiet quitting, the great resignation, all these buzzwords that have come up since, since COVID hit. 
they're facts. If we are not as leaders engaging our people and continually, continuously recognizing that they are an important piece of that of that wheel, they're an important cog in that wheel. And not only that, but providing them the ability to scale their their talent, to be able to use it in different ways, to be able to understand and dig into deep to who that who, who that individual is, um, and help them to progress in whatever way they want to. That's how I feel we're gonna we're gonna be able to retain talent. But just I'd love your thoughts on how do we do that? How do leaders? How do, as someone leading a a large remote and hybrid team, how do I keep people engaged? Yeah. Hey, here here's the here's the starting point. I'm a pretty simple guy. In the end, is you probably have a thousand touch points with your employees every year as a leader, right? A thousand places where they're going to bump into you and bump into your company. And I've always been a fan of, of some research done a while back by a guy named John Gottman and his wife. They're called the, they ran the love lab. I don't know if you heard of these folks, but they basically studied relationships for about 20 years. And they found out that the, the smallest unit of a relationship is this thing called a bid, right? You know, when I bid towards you, there's three kinds of bid. I bid towards you. It's me nodding my head. I'm making good eye contact. I'm smiling. I'm asking how you are. There's the bid away, which is me looking at my phone, looking away as you're talking, uh, jumping over you or changing the subject every time you open your mouth or just ignoring you, right? And the third one is the bid against. You say left, I say right. You say up, I say down. It's the sort of argument. And what they found is that people with really good relationships they will bid towards each other 60, 65% more times. And they could predict, this is the interesting thing, they could predict having you sit in their lab for a couple hours, they could predict with about 98% accuracy whether or not you'd be married in seven years. And if in some ways our relationships to our companies and our leaders are sort of like a marriage, right? It's a deep commitment. We have to be thinking about, hey, every time I go by my employer, my person or my you know, talent that I'm leading, am I asking the question of how are you? And when they say fine, am I walking by it? Or am I saying, hey, really, how are you? Is there anything I can do for you? Can I help you? What do you need? Like, those are some of the things that are just simple. And in busy times, when we're stressed out and burnt out, 53% of managers are burnt out right now. 70% of the C-suite are thinking about quitting their jobs, right? Everybody's fo focus is so narrowed and internal. Right. We're working on ourselves. And so I think as a leader, we have to first just realize that our responsibilities to our people, those jobs are about X, you know, importing stress and exporting civility. And you got to do that every day. And it's simple, like those simple things that we do. How many times in a remote environment do we pop on a video to just complete a task and then pop back off? You know, I mean, it's it's 30 more seconds at the end of the call. Just go, hey, Jeffrey, we haven't copped in a while. Like, tell me one thing that's happened in your life. Like, I mean, it's just it's not hard stuff. We're just none of us have the energy to kind of do it, nor the tools if we're hybrid or remote to do it in a really meaningful and authentic way. You know, you, you just referenced the C-suite and managers being burned out. And um, I know you shared even at the Chamber uh, Talent Forward event the challenge around that. Any thoughts you'd want to talk to around succession planning and, and really the lack thereof that's really occurring uh, within the workplace today around the future of work? Yeah. You, well, when it comes to succession planning, I, you know, I do worry about the state of, of leadership. I worry about the leaders that are in seat right now, that we didn't prepare them and now they're stressed out and taking on all the weight. 
And I worry about whether or not we're preparing the next generation to be ready to handle what's still ahead of us. I mean, it's one of the most complex macro environments I've seen in a long time. Um, it's hard just in your day with your small team and it's hard in the company and it's hard in the world, right? And so our ability as leaders to first have a great deal of resilience. Secondly, is to have enough curiosity to care about the talent and who's sitting with me and whether or not they're doing good work. And I think third, just, you know, having strategies to be able to reduce the tax of work are all really important. I'm not sure that's what we're looking for as we're thinking about our succession candidates, but we sure should be. Um, and then the other thing is you and I, Jeffrey, we're having this interesting discussion about burnout. Uh, it's pretty much hitting everybody, right? And we know the front lines, it's much worse. And we know in places like healthcare, it's much worse or in service. I mean, we're seeing examples of that from the writer's strike to Starbucks just yesterday. Um, I think the other thing is we're not listening, right? I look at what happened with Starbucks. And for those of you who listened to this later on, there was a strike during their Red Cup day of about 8,000 employees. And I, I sit there and ask the question, I'm like, what didn't happen six months ago that could have prevented that moment, right? Is part of it is I just don't know that we're listening to the signals of discontent, burnout, and stress that are actually out there. And sometimes that's all we need. There's this interesting book called Burnout that talks about burnout isn't necessarily about all the things that are weighing on, on us in the moment. What's actually happening in burnout is we never get to complete the emotional cycle that allows us to let go of difficult events. COVID's a great, for instance, I mean, think about the healthcare world. We went from a pandemic emergency back into a system that was already, right, kind of overstressed before those things happened. And I just wonder, has anyone had the chance to get rid of all that emotion so then we can, we can move on. And what the book said, which I thought was a really interesting perspective, is burnout happens because of the compounding impact of unresolved emotional states that over time build up if we don't recognize and deal with them. I just thought, God, that's a simple strategy too. Yeah. Well, and to your point, Andre, I don't know if you, <clears throat> Travis, have read this, but there's a really powerful letter and uh, actually makes me a little emotional because you know, I'm a son of a nurse and my mom will regularly say to me, nursing for so long, we just haven't helped them deal with all the mental aspects of what they face. But nurse Tristan, who committed suicide, wrote a letter, which, you know, went to the letter to the editor afterwards, her father found it and published it. And in the letter, uh, she was a nurse in Ohio. In the letter, she cites all the challenges of her healthcare system. She cites what, what they were, she cites how she attempted to get them addressed and they just continued in her words, neglect, 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 ignore, 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 ultimately leading her to take her own life. Oh. And I think to your point, people have to get vulnerable on these issues. Leaders have to listen. Shareholders, board members have to listen because we're seeing this to your point, every industry. I was just at a Starbucks in Seattle a week or so ago and asked them, you know, obviously pretty hotbed uh, from a union activity there. Yeah. I asked them, I said, you know, why can't I tip you uh, with cash? And they said, Starbucks won't let me. We're not allowed to. You got to tip on the credit card. You're not allowed to tip here because of the union activity. And so, you know, and, and, and that's a little issue. 
but it only yeah. to your point compounds into a larger one. And so I think your, your uh, emphasis on the listening and addressing is so powerful. I do too. And I'd love to see the letter. You'll have to send it to me because that's, you know, whether it's healthcare workers or teachers or anyone in the service industry, you just, you have this feeling that, you know, the compounding impact of constant stress, microaggressions, things that are disappointing. Like, I just think we got to figure out a way to resolve them because I still like, I hold on to this belief that, Hey, a 15 to 20 year career is still possible. Like job hopping costs us in some really profound ways every time we move. And I think secondly is this idea of, I also think there's a time when companies should at this point with everything we know, be able to say, come to work here and you'll walk out healthier. Mentally, physically, emotionally, all the things like I believe there's a way to run a company that can do that. And we know, right? I came from sports psychology originally, right? We know that elite performance, elite human performance is actually attainable via periods of really high performance and really, really impactful, really intentional recovery. It's the way that we're wired. And yet we sort of seemingly want to ignore that. Um, in our workplace. And I, you know, I've never understood, I haven't understood that since I started in this space of going, God, we know so much about human potential. And yet we don't seem to apply it into companies. I think part of it is just because it's hard. It's so much easier to put a bandaid on a current system than have to rip it out and try to do it a better way. Yeah. But, Great. you know, if, if, if our doctors and nurses work that way, we'd never have the medical advances we have. Yeah. Andre, I want to give you a chance to tell our listeners where they can find you, where they can get the book, uh, you know, anything from from sort of a closing thoughts. And then I want to obviously pass it over to Travis for closing thoughts. Yeah, sure. So I'll start with uh, you can buy the book anywhere, right? Bookstores and Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, all the booksellers. You can find me at www.wrongfitrightfit.com. There you'll see you know, there's extra resources. You'll find me. You can see some of the speeches and podcasts I've done. And then the last place, which I think is the one I'm, I'm kind of most passionate about today, is I have a newsletter that's called mondaymatters.substack.com. And it's meant to be something you can read with your first cup of coffee or tea in the morning on Monday. And it's real practical tips to just make the week a little bit better for yourself and somebody else. So uh, I cover a topic every week uh, from energy to time to uh, giving feedback to whatever it is. And it's, it's meant to be a little fun. Uh, a little light and and pretty practical. So I hope you'll go check that out too. And I highly recommend it. I get it every <laughs> Monday and I definitely recommend it uh, for anyone. I appreciate that. Travis. Yeah, no, Andre, just thank you so much. The perspective that you bring is just different. It's refreshing. It's needed. It's uh, it's just, it's it's counterintuitive to the workplace where we're trying to fill our seats as quickly as we can, not understanding that uh, by us filling our seats, filling that position and as quickly as we possibly can, that it could be, a, it could be detrimental not only to the, our company, but detrimental to that, to that person's well-being. And you just, what, what you just talked about is, is exactly the way that I lead my teams. I want people that come to work for me knowing that they're going to be healthier individuals because of, because of the way that, that we operate. And what, what you're bringing into the workforce, what you're bringing into the, uh, through your book, through your newsletter and through your podcast and, and what you do is valued. It is, it's amazing. It's needed. It's necessary. And like I, we say this all the time, but I, I think leadership, good leadership, quality leadership saves lives. I've seen it in the Marine Corps. Um, and if people lead the way that, the way that, the way that you're 
laying this out for them and are listening and understanding what wrong fit, right fit looks like for an individual and for a company, we are going to be in good hands. I have a lot of hope. So thank you so much for coming on. Um, guys, go subscribe to the newsletter, get the book, check out the podcasts. You will not be disappointed. I promise you that. So also subscribe to Jeffrey and I. Um, we have conversations like this all the time and it's just a lot of fun and um, we're grateful for you all and uh, we will see you next time on the Holistic Leadership Podcast. Thanks, fellas. Take care. Thank you.